But throughout this month, we've been uh, looking at the impact of the church during the first century and asking the question, how is it possible for the gospel to spread around the entire Roman world so quickly? And the answer to that question has been because the early church, particularly the church of the first century, was all in. Last week we talked about how, how they, were, they were all in as, as, as being all together. They were part of the fellowship. We've talked about how they answered the call to go wherever God called them to go. I'm so grateful for those that answer that call to go to places that I cannot go. I think of Mike and Nikki and their lives of, of having served in Kyrgyzstan and, and then in Turkey. Uh, that's a, it's amazing to see people answer the call of God to go wherever he says to go. That's what the church did. Then there were those that, that, that they made the ultimate buy-in by literally giving their very lives uh, in service to Jesus and for his sake, it cost them their lives. But how did these, these apostles, these particularly the, the apostles, I mean, they, when Jesus was arrested, they fled. When they were confronted about knowing him or being one of his followers, they denied him. They stood off to the side while he was tortured and crucified, and yet they became emboldened, yet they became empowered, and they were so effective that within 300 years of that time, there were 7 million believers on the earth. I want to direct your attention today to three different verses in the book of Acts which has really been our text throughout our, our last, the last month, and that is chapter 1 of Acts, verse 4, 5, and then verse 8. This is post-now-resurrection. Jesus has been appearing to his disciples now for about 40 days, and uh, this is but pre-ascension to the Father. Verse 4 says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've got a baptismal tank set up here, and at the end of the service we have a couple of guys that are going to get baptized today. They are making, that's right, a public confession of their faith in Jesus. We do that because it's what we see in the scriptures, right? When we baptize people, nobody says, man, where do you guys get that? Where do you guys, where do you guys, how, how did you figure that stuff? Man, and we take it right out of God's word. When we, when we take communion, nobody says, man, I, I just don't understand why you guys have this, 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 this Lord's Supper that you, obviously we take it right from the scripture. Well, I want to take right from the scripture today and I want to look at the promised gift. The first thing I want you to know today, I love some of the songs that we sang this morning, specifically mentioned it in the lyrics, and that is this, that God makes 
promises. Do you know how many promises are in the Bible? I think this is going to surprise you. How many of you think there are a thousand promises in the Bible? Raise your hand. Okay? I got two people. Okay? Three people. How many of you think there's 2,000 in the Bible? How many of you think there's 3,000? Now you're starting to catch on to me. You're like, hey, this is going up here. He's not going to go down. There are, according to uh, Bible Gateway, which is like my favorite Bible search engine, uh, 5,467 promises made by God in the Bible. That's a lot of promises. Now, if you make a promise to your kids, okay, if you utter in any sentence, it does not matter the context, the words ice cream, okay? <laughs> I guarantee you that is a promise. Matt, what do they say? Dad, you promised. I was talking about, about, about something that happened to me when I was a kid. What are you talking about? If you mention the word, that's a promise, right? And they hold it to you. 12 years later, Dad, you remember that time you promised us ice cream and you never got it for us? Come on. These college kids over here, they're like, no, that's not us. We're too, yeah. That is, I'm telling you, I don't care how old I am. My dad promises me ice cream. I, I want it, okay? But what does the Bible say about those 5,467 promises? I love this. This is great. If you're, if you're taking notes this morning uh, on the YouVersion Live app or on the insert there in the bulletin, uh, you, can, you can make sure that you, uh, you have notes of these scriptures because they're awesome. Psalm 119, let me just read a few really quickly. Verse 140, it says, Your promises have been thoroughly, what? Tested. His promises have been th- not just tested, thoroughly tested. That is awesome. Joshua 23, 14. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has what? Failed. They're all, they're all being kept. They're all successfully coming to pass. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift from the Father does not change. The Father doesn't change and the promises don't change. The gifts that he has for us, they do not change. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that God has made to you and I. Do you realize that? If you want to experience all 5,467 of those promises, you can find them all in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where it all happens. That's where the promises are. We refer to a a testable promise between two people as a contract. Now, you, you have a contract because... We've learned that you can't always trust everyone, right? So we, we make a contract. And that contract becomes legal and binding between those two individuals, enforceable even, even by the law. If you try to bail out on a contract, that other person can take you to court and they can, they can force you to make good on your promise. 
What do you call a testable promise between God and man? You call it a covenant. That's exactly what it is. It's a covenant. But you see the difference between a contract between people and a covenant between God and man is that the the covenant between God and us, it's a contractual agreement, but it is based solely on the strength of God's character alone. It is a self-imposed obligation. There's nothing that you can do if he wanted out of it, but it is the strength of his character that maintains it. He doesn't need a court standing over him saying, if you don't keep your promise, we're going to force you to do it. It is the the strength of his character alone. He makes promises. Number two, he declares those promises in advance. Now, this is what what our our kids love this, man. They want to get it ahead of time. You know, and they, they will ask us, you know, hey, can we do this? And if you, if you say maybe, that's a promise, okay? <laughs> maybe is a promise. It is, it is written in stone. So let it be written, so let it be done. Dad said maybe ice cream, we're getting it. Do you see what I'm saying? How we are as humans, that's how we are. God declares his promises in advance. Jesus compared our desire to give good gifts And what are gifts? They're just realized promises. Uh, To give good gifts to our children, he compared that to God's ability to give good gifts to his children. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? When we think of giving gifts to our, our children, we think of of Christmas. We think of their birthdays. I asked my wife yesterday, I said, honey, I said, what would you like for Mother's Day? Okay, I want to get this right. I don't want to just do flowers and, and you know, I, I, I want to know, is there something that you want? Because, because she's really good at that and, and I, that's, I feel like I'm weak in that area. I want to give her a good gift. And when I give her a good gift, I really know it. Okay, she really lets me know if I, if I happen to stumble on the right thing, she really lets me know that I did, and she, she it makes her feel good. But there can be no comparison between our desire to give our children or our wives or our husbands gifts and, and the gifts that God gives us. There's literally no comparison And in his letter to the Ephesian church, the Apostle Paul refers to the grace that saves us as the gift of God. Do you understand that salvation through Jesus and his blood is God's ultimate gift? And he promises it to any who would would accept it. Think of that. He promises that gift to us and he declares it in advance. James 1.7 says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Because of God's love, he gave the gift of his Son to die for you and I. But you see, God gave his Son before you and I ever accepted him. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us that promise in advance. But not just 2,000 years ago. I love how Revelation refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. 
God made that plan and he began that promise before the world was ever created. But let's stick to something that, that we see in Scripture that I, that I love, okay? And, and when we look at God giving the gift of his son, w- let me ask you this. Would you give your child to be sacrificed for the sin of a murderer? Would you do that? I wouldn't. I wouldn't give one of my kids. In fact, I wouldn't even give your kids. I wouldn't do it. Why? Because I, I, I would say it's not worth it. But God gave his only son for the sins of the world. Let's look at this for a second. That promise that God made, he declared that promise even a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. David says, he's quoted, uh, he quotes Jesus while Jesus is on the cross in Psalm 22. He said, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is, a, that is a prophecy of the Savior to come. How could David, a thousand years before, quote the words that our Savior would quote while on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. That never happened to David, but he spoke it prophetically. Those, that is exactly what happened to Jesus. God was promising a thousand years ahead of time that he was going to send his son as a sacrifice to die for our sins. What a promise! And he makes it in advance. 750 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 and verse 5, he declares the promises of God when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That entire verse is written in the past tense. And all the English majors said amen. It's written in past tense, 750 years before Jesus. Past tense, why? It was already done. It was already done. Not only does God promise to give us his gifts, but he's declared them in advance. In Joel chapter 2, this is 800, more than 800 years before Jesus. In Joel chapter 2, the minor prophet there twice in verses 28 and 29, he gives the promise of God, I will pour out of my spirit. This advanced declaration of God's promise 800 years in advance, Peter makes the connection for us on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, when he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter goes on in Acts 2, verse 39, and says that that promise of God pouring out his spirit also looks forward. It was made in the past. It is for today, but it looks forward when he said the promise is for you and your children and all for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Not only did God begin declaring those promises a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, 750 years ago, but they are continually moving on into the future to whomever answers the call of God on their life. Number three, 
This promise is specifically of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 again from our text. For John baptized you with water. That's what we're going to do in a little bit. But Jesus said in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now this was not the first time in Scripture when this statement was made. It was made also in Matthew and Luke. It was made by John the baptizer. Look at Luke 3 verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Those gospel statements are made three and a half years before the events of the book of Acts. Jesus, John, and the other writers acknowledged that indeed John baptized with water, but that Jesus was going to baptize them with something different, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You say, but what does that really mean? What is this baptism that he is talking about? There's often confusion when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit and his relationship to the believer. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples behind closed doors. We read about it in John chapter 20 and verse 22. And it says, and with that, he being Jesus, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek form of that word receive, it denotes a single act of reception. And up until this time, the disciples, although they were believers in the Messiah, they were under the old covenant. Similarly, when you and I repent of our sins and we accept Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives. When we talk to our children, we, we say to them, or or even adults, we say, have you ever accepted Jesus or would you like to accept Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior? Isn't that what we say? We talked about this in our membership class on Wednesday night, uh, that, that Jesus, the scripture tells us, even though Jesus is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, but, but functionally, positionally, he is in one place, okay? The Bible says that he is at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for you and I, okay? That's where he is. He can be all places at one time, but that is where he is. So if, if we're here on earth and we're accepting Jesus as our Savior, who is it that is coming into our lives? It is the person of the Holy Spirit, okay? And when Jesus said, receive you the Holy Spirit, that's what he was doing. That the Holy Spirit was coming into their lives under the new covenant in Jesus blood and that is a single reception okay in other words when we accept Christ on Tuesday we don't have to receive him again on Wednesday are you with me I wish I'd understood that as a child I think I accepted Jesus every single night when I went to bed I can can remember going to bed and say, Jesus, I I accept you as my Savior. I prayed that every single night. Why? I didn't want to miss miss Jesus coming back. I wanted to be ready, and I I knew that I had done some things that day that that I shouldn't have done, and I got a spanking for it, and I, I was just, I wanted to be right with God, okay? 
But when we accept Jesus, he's, he's there. The presence of the Holy Spirit is there. It's a, it's a, a thing that we, we don't need to do over and over again. Okay? We see the picture of, of Revelation 3.20. Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. And so we think of that as the person of Jesus. But the, the, the function, the purpose, the, the, the place of Jesus is at the right hand of God, making intercession. It is the Holy Spirit that indwells us. But the gift of being baptized, talked about here in Acts, the word, the Greek word baptizo, is, is not a one-time event. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And though that, that be filled, it denotes repetitive. It's, it literally should say, be being filled. It's something that happens again and again, that we are filled with the Spirit. So let's look at the Number four, the power of this promise that we have. Let's look at verse eight of Acts one from our text. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I, I wanna make sure that we're, we're let's go back. To, what's our series? What's our series? All in. We're talking about the impact of the early church in the first century. How were they able to spread the gospel the way that they were? And literally, Jesus is answering that question for us. In the moments before he ascended into heaven, he reiterates to his followers that they would receive the gift promised by God. They were even told where to go to wait for it. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Obviously, they needed to be in Jerusalem. He even identifies the gift. He tells them that the gift is going to be being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We read verse 5 earlier. It says, for John baptized you with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for baptize. And those words have slightly different meaning. And they were, they were not used extensively outside of the church. But there was a poet and a historian named Nisander who lived 200 years B.C. He was Greek and he wrote about the process of pickling vegetables. Okay, are you with me? How many, of you, how many of you pickle stuff? Anybody? Do you pickle stuff? I, I, you know, I, I mistakenly, you know, you just think about pickling pickles, right? But really, p- people pickle all sorts of stuff, right? You, I mean, I, I've had pickled asparagus. Um, there's all sorts of things that you pickle from your garden. My grandmother used to pickle a lot of different things. And, and I was the benefactor of a lot of that stuff, Okay? But the first word uh, is babto, and Nisander wrote that the vegetables first must need, they needed to be dipped into boiling water, and then they needed to be baptized or baptizo in the vinegar solution. 
Both of those verbs, they concern being the vegetables being immersed, but the first one is only momentary. It is a one-time thing. And the second, baptizo, is literally something that is a continual process. We used to live in central Wisconsin, and in the town neighboring us, there were these big, huge wooden vats, and they grew a lot of cucumbers in the area. And those cucumbers were picked at a certain size, and they went through this process, and those big vats were filled with dill and vinegar, and those cucumbers in that solution became what? They became pickles. When you buy those pickles, they are in the vinegar solution, aren't they? They don't, they don't separate it from the vinegar until you go to eat it because that's what keeps that cucumber in the state that it needs to be, tasting like a pickle. That second act of, of baptizing the vegetable, it produces a permanent change. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit produces in us a permanent change that is different from our salvation. There is something that happens that's different. And that change, according to Acts chapter 1, is characterized by the power that they would receive. Are you with me? The Greek word for power means strength, ability, and power for performing miracles. Specifically, Jesus said that they were going to receive the power to be his witnesses. In the legal sense, they would give testimony. They would proclaim the truth of who Jesus was and what he had done. And as they would spread out from Jerusalem and throughout the known Roman Empire, they were going to be empowered to declare the truth of who Jesus was. Many were, it, it was accompanied by miracles. People saw the power of God and they were drawn to that power. The church grew exponentially faster because God had given the gift of His Holy Spirit that would empower them to serve as witnesses to the risen Messiah. And it is that baptism of the Holy Spirit that, it, that still to this day empowers the church. It empowers the church to grow. The church that accepts and believes in this promised gift of God is called the Pentecostal church. And the Pentecostal church is literally around the world today. In 1998, a man named Vincent Sinan, he compared the worldwide growth of Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal movements over a 90-year period between 1914 and 2004. And in that, that the movement whose theology accepted the experience of the infilling of the Holy Spirit for today as recorded in Acts chapter 2 grew at a rate, an astonishing rate of 13 to 1 over the movement that rejected the same theology regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not because of methods, not because of money, but because of the power of this gift of God. Philip Jenkins is a professor of religion at Penn State University. And he says in 2002 that Pentecostals at that time numbered 400 million around the world. 
and that they possibly could reach 1 billion by 2040. George Weigel, a, se- a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Policy, a Public Policy Center in D.C., says that as of today, there are 643.6 million Pentecostals. And he projects that there could be 1 million by 2050. And he says this, Charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity is the fastest growing phenomenon in world religious history. Friends, how is it possible that the 11 that were left that became 120 on the day of Pentecost, how is it possible that they could grow to be 1 billion people? The promised gift of the Father. The Holy Spirit. And so today, as we we are here to, some 2,000 years later, we're a part of that. That promised gift of the Father is still available for us today. The Holy Spirit. You say, but pastor, I, I, you know, I've accepted Christ. I'm saved. Yes, you are, but that promised gift of the Father is still available for us. The power of of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's home. In Judea, that's like Scandia. Okay, Samaria, that's like, that's like Marquette and Nagani. To the uttermost parts of the world. And I believe that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will reach our community for Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you bow your heads? I'm just going to ask the worship team to come and get in place. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this gift, this promised gift that you have for us. Father, I believe that it is your desire that we would all accept and receive that gift. I believe that it's a gift, Lord, that you have specifically given to us, designed to empower us, that we would be your witnesses, that your power would flow through us, that even miracles would happen, powerful miracles. Lord, that that those who are sick would be healed, that those who are demonized may be set free. Lord, that, that, that those with maladies would be healed. Father, I believe in that power today. I believe in that infilling today. And Father, I pray that yet today you would continue to pour out that promised gift on your people. Father, we look at that first century church. How did the gospel spread around the known Roman world? And it was only through that infilling of the Holy Spirit, that empowerment that they received. Father, I pray that as your church, Lord, that we would walk in that power. Lord, that we would open our hearts and say, God, fill us with 
that power today. Lord, we long to see more and more come to Jesus. And Lord, we understand that you have given us a gift designed to see people come to know Jesus. Lord, I pray, empower us today in Jesus' name.